Unsee the future. How to encourage the more hopeful human tomorrow. Episode 18. Poverty. Part 1. Don't say it. Don't. Say Africa. It is a name that seems always in the shadow of the word poverty, haunting the imaginations of certainly Western minds whenever issues of inequality are aired. But for what might be the world's richest continent in natural, human and historic resources, the irony of this reflexive cultural association is so gross, it may illustrate the real truth of poverty. It is the flip side of justice, the very embodiment of injustice. Those comparisons that drive us mad trying to keep up with each other, reducing us with burdens of supposed failures, they have us look down at those of us at the bottom of the ladder and say, thank God, that's not me. But is this basic lack of recognition a sign of the real problem? Well, while the tracks of poverty may well lead from some psychologies at the heart of our cultural problems on 21st century Earth, they surely lead us to the nub of human suffering, the ultimate indignities of complete disempowerment. And the numbers of us living at this end of those tracks is still a yoke around all our hopes for enlightenment. Our progress seems like a bitter disillusionment in the face of still so many human stories of the very basic misery and dehumanization of poverty. As we conclude our look at the UN's Global Goals for Sustainability, its grand SDGs, is the physical ruin of rural communities as the poorest families suffer far away from the stupendously unequal wealths of other communities around the world, while billionaires build space buses for the least environmentally sensitive tourism imaginable, is it arguably all just a symptom of what's really wrong? Our whole system of valuation, our culture of want in every sense, because it appears to be killing us. But, you know, cheer up a bit, mate. This is the podcast about the more hopeful human tomorrow. And there's been some progress in all this, hasn't there? And if this is the case, could we yet bring the numbers in extreme poverty down further after years of comparative improvement? Even eradicate truly extreme poverty by 2030, as the UN hopes? Or will achieving fairer outcomes for more of us mean striking to the heart of what got us to where we are, as globalisation cracks under its own weight of demand? Will we have to finally address what must be vying for the statistically greatest injustice of history? The wealth of Europe and America, the root of globalisation itself, built on the backs of slaves from Africa. What might that cost to really address? And if you think that is a price no one in power will ever entertain spending, especially in populist climates where more honest colonial histories are badged as revisionist, you may well be right. But the inescapable question coming into focus behind it nonetheless is how high is the cost of having never addressed it so far? 
And what will it conceivably be for us all in the looming future of what look increasingly like inevitable consequences? Of everything. With the largest proportion of world poor living south of the Sahara, will we have to face the truth that our real human poverty is much farther reaching than economic droughts, actual famines and hopeless academic numbers, but something holding our very minds hostage in a shared cultural custody, impoverishing the well-being, the potential, the very hope of human life on Earth? If our modern lifestyle illnesses, our struggling minds and bodies, our oceans clogged with disposable consumer waste, our entire climate shifting from the chemical biological assault of our lifestyles, if these are all different symptoms of the same story, maintaining old-fashioned poverties, alongside a seemingly growing dependency on charity across cultures, is it time we all began to count the cost? of sparing more than a little change. I'm Timo Peach, and if you're a regular unseer, I'll bet you've got one more question in mind too. How the heck is he going to wring any laughs out of this one? Have we come so far together to leave you still so hopeless, you silly sausage? The United Nations makes its number one global goal. No poverty. And they simply byline it like this. End poverty in all its forms, everywhere. It is the biggest umbrella problem facing humanity in the 21st century. And it is arguably the bellwether for how well everything else we're doing is going. Which means we aren't doing very well at all, if their longer statement on the matter is true. Eradicating poverty is not a task of charity, it is an act of justice and the key to unlocking an enormous human potential. Still, nearly half of the world's population lives in poverty, and lack of food and clean water is killing thousands every single day of the year. Together, we can feed the hungry, wipe out disease, and give everyone in the world a chance to prosper and live a productive and rich life. If we can, then... Uh why aren't we? Save the Children have issued a report that spells out the work still to do, like this. More than half the world's children, 1.2 billion, live in countries affected by widespread poverty, conflict and discrimination against girls. Half the world's children... 14.1 million kids in the US alone grow up in poverty, they say. In America, which chimes with the Joseph Rowntree Foundation's report at the end of last year, which said that a very similar number of adults and children together are living in poverty in the UK today, with the decline in reducing poverty reversing for the first time in two decades. So it doesn't matter where you live. It's easy to get poor and easily impossible to get out of poverty. Developed countries, developing nations, democracies and dictatorships. The global economic system, as it currently works, appears to be a long way from working well. We seem to have come far enough to see the potential of really transforming human life on Earth for the healthier. But jeepers! What's stopping us pushing it over the line? 
Essentially, I've all but summed up this final Global Goals episode at the beginning of it. I think there's a mindset, a habitualized shared culture, that's effectively driving us towards destroying all kinds of human progresses, even as we're working so hard to improve our lot and still have a squinting eye on the possibilities of the future. And the outcome of this mindset, in the end, is always poverty. For someone. You can quote the Universal Charter for Human Rights all you want, but in the end, we don't universally perceive intrinsic value in anything, or anyone. Because there's no irrefutable higher power that can lay down the law on this. We're left to work it out between us, like hopeless hipsters starving on the island. The brutal truth is that at the very bottom line of our current economic system, humans are just so much meat to each other. When they don't know them. When they do, the emotional bollocks of market value goes out the window, mate. But before both our Marxism red flags toot warnings again, I think we can agree there's work to do. And the global goals don't aim low, as we know. The UN's bold goal is to eradicate extreme poverty for all people everywhere by 2030. And their measure of that is people living on less than $1.25 a day. If you want to know how many people are actually attempting to live their lives on less than 125 cents a day, it is, as NGO Nuru explains, some 1.6 billion people on the planet today not just in measurable poverty, but an extreme experience of it. They suggest that 85% of people having to live through this live in rural locations, and not so far short of a third of them in sub-Saharan Africa. But whatever the pie chart of the pilus, you and I likely have no real feeling for what extreme poverty really means. It's a total kind of poverty. It's a profound powerlessness. It's not simply debilitating hunger or the indignity of having nothing of anything materially. It is a fundamental lack of options, of choices to improve matters. It is, I hopelessly try to imagine, a prison of degradation. Gisela Bernadez-Solimos is General Manager of the not-for-profit CREN, Centre of Nutritional Recovery and Education in Brazil. And as she says to the World Economic Forum, our experience has shown that being poor means to be exposed to a range of adverse conditions that go against, limit or put obstacles to the fulfilment of the person, to their coming to be themselves. People in poverty suffer from pain. It attacks a person not only materially, but also morally, eating away at one's dignity and driving one into total despair. She describes the symptoms of poverty to include physical pain that comes with too little food and long hours of work, emotional pain stemming from the daily humiliations of dependency and lack of power, moral pain from being forced to make choices such as whether to pay to save the life of an ill family member or use the money to feed their children. And she gets to the human truth of it further when she adds, While poverty is material in its origins, it has psychological effects such as distress at being unable to feed one's children, insecurity from not knowing when the next meal will come, and shame 
and having a go without. All these situations have strong symbolic value. People in poverty are also more likely to develop non-specific psychopathological manifestations and become mentally ill. Wherever you're dealing with it, poverty makes you dependent on others and therefore on a sense of powerlessness. Sharing in overcoming poverty, 28-year-old Shay in New Orleans says she started with childhood ambitions. When I was a little girl, I dreamt of becoming either a police officer or a lawyer or a hairdresser. I wanted to be an independent woman and to sacrifice my life for my kids and not depend on others. Very soon, I realised that these are not going to happen. School was tough. I was in 11th grade when Katrina hit. I was displaced and separated from my family. I couldn't find my mother, my brothers and sisters. I missed school and ended up getting pregnant with my firstborn. She adds this, I think I am left behind, because now I live on food stamps for my kids. If I get a full-time job, they will cut my food stamps, and I will continue struggling to raise my kids. I hope for a better place for me and other mothers to help others in need. This world is not just for all of us, because everything is a struggle for us. Poverty is a life draining of inspiration, the spark that is the magic firelighter of confidence. To put it academically, it is a multidimensional problem. As the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative puts it, multidimensional poverty is made up of several factors that constitute poor people's experience of deprivation, such as poor health, lack of education, inadequate living standard, lack of income, disempowerment, poor quality of work, and threat from violence. The UN, in its goal, wants to, by 2030, ensure that all men and women, in particular the poor and the vulnerable, have equal rights to economic resources, as well as access to basic services, ownership and control over land and other forms of property, inheritance, natural resources, appropriate new technology, and financial services, including microfinance. And they want to build resilience to environmental, economic and social disasters, implement social protection systems, and try to get policy frameworks into place to be more pro-poor and gender-sensitive. However, that's really going to work on the ground. The collected point being that to simply consider poverty from the economic point of view, chime as that bell immediately does when we say the word poverty, is to miss a lot. As the OPHI says in simple example, Economic growth has been strong in India in recent years. In contrast, the prevalence of child malnutrition has remained at nearly 50%, which is among the highest rates in the world. Extreme poverty is to barely exist. But to do so, knowing that others are living full lives right over the road. And the truth is, that $1.25 line is based on the old purchasing power parity exchange rate, the PPP, of a few years ago. Upgraded itself from the old dollar-a-day measure concocted for stats in the early 90s. Today, that sensible measure of the value of what people can afford is, according to the World Bank compiling the figures, actually $1.90, almost $2 a day from which graph-inducing technicalities it is enough to glean that the cost of everything has gone up, making the extremely poor even worse off. 
Uh, once you can't eat or work or find any way to run your own life, it's all bitterly academic, I'm sure. Now, the numbers of us in poverty at all has come down across the last century, even as populations have in some cases ballooned. But it's hardly fast enough, is it? Not when you consider the wealth in the world today. Nuru suggests that the cost of eradicating poverty is only 1% of global income. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? Especially when one of the four big audit corporations, KPMG, announced that 2017 was a record-breaker for global venture capital investment at some $155 billion. And especially, especially, when you consider that the six richest people in the world, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Ma and Elon Musk respectively, or Mr. Microsoft, Mr. Amazon, Mr. Bits of Everything, Mr. Facebook, Mr. Alibaba and Mr. Magic Future, are together alone worth supposedly way more than double that. Six people. And it's not like they're alone. But... You know, before we get into wondering what they're doing with all that cash, Elon Musk's single-handed retooling of the known universe aside, it might be interesting to ask a really dumb question first. What does this world currently amount to? How big is the Hill of Beans? How much money is there in the world? Ever wondered... If we're talking poverty, it might be interesting to throw it into the context of global wealth a little, no? And the way we do that always starts with stupid numbers. Complicated sounding stupid big numbers, because we find them comfortingly, bafflingly rational sounding. Go on, how's your portfolio looking? Derivatives? Property. I'm sure you have it nicely in hand, and the future is sewn up for you one way or another, speculating and hedging with shrewd exposures to risk. My portfolio career, on the other hand, may end me up at the other end of the economic ladder, but with an excellent spread of stories on my website to show for it. Money is funny business. What even is it these days? Jeff Desjardins may sound like a stage name, but he's obviously a bloke with an interest in numbers and how to make sense of them because his money markets comparison at visualcapitalist.com illustrates just what we're currently talking about when we talk about what we value financially. As Su Chang puts it going through the chart for MarketWatch, the definition of money can mean a few things, so there are different ways of counting how much there is. For purists who believe money refers to only physical, narrow money, banknotes, coins and money deposited in savings or checking accounts, she says, the total is somewhere around $36.8 trillion. If you're looking at broad money, which isn't just physical cash but includes any money held in easily accessible accounts, the number is about $90.4 trillion. Now actually, those notes and coins in your pocket, actual money cash moolah, physically passing between grubby mitts and sometimes through washing machines, add up to just seven and a half or so trillion dollars. Just about the same as the total value of the world's above-ground gold, some 187,200 tonnes of it, apparently. A lot of coin, but not really. Not compared to the assets locked up in not just bank databases, but bricks and mortar, and bits of paper promising this and that if such and such goes up or down in agreed value. 
Jeff's big chart puts the market capitalization of all the world's stock markets at $73 trillion, 38% of which is just North America, with Europe following a bit way behind at 11%, China just behind that on 10%, Japan alone at 7%, and the UK the fifth largest player on 5% of the market's action. Just to compare, real estate values are estimated at $217 trillion, which shows you where all the savings really are. And cracking towards half of that is in the US and Europe, where nowhere near half the world lives. Still, the CAF at Sandbanks still does an agreeably priced breakfast for us non-oligarchs, surprisingly. But the biggest number in world money is so big, no one quite knows what it is, apparently. Various boffany methods arrive at two ends of a possible scale with the sort of clarity of method and result that really warms your worries about ever facing a financial crash again like a fluffy covered hot water bottle. Because the derivatives market, contracts of payment agreements surfing the value of underlying assets, which could be absolutely anything, is thought to be worth $544 trillion. At the low end. At the high end, guess, it's possibly 1.2 quadrillion, which is a made-up number you'd use in a playground which also makes Jeffrey Sachs' figure from his infamous book The End of Poverty sound rather sluciably loose as change goes. $195 billion a year. How much it would conceivably cost the world to eradicate poverty by 2030? A number that's been kicking around the debates in handy headline simplicity since he worked it out in 2005, buoyed by years researching a high-minded belief in the power of aid. And back then, that cost worked out at just 0.7% of the world's combined GDP. Broadly, where Nuru and others get the idea of how comparatively little it could cost us to sort out the problem. Interesting to remember, however, that alongside global GDP, gross domestic product, there is global debt. And while I can tell you it's spectacularly high at 325% or $215 trillion, $215 trillion suddenly sounds like birdseed compared to the 1.2 quadzillion squillion flappy bird hands in the sky number you've just heard before it. And when you consider that swapping debts and betting on secret handshakes values of abstract things was what all but collapsed the market in 2008, and there isn't even a practically useful way of even saying the possible value of such not wholesale different financial agreements today, ten years on, hey, let's not even go on. Let's not even spell out what disaster might be wrapped up in all that unmentionable derivatives market value the world is literally banking on more than anything. Because it would be a foolhardily meaningless thing to say when everything seems to be just about fine, right? Business as usual. Derivatives give us borrowing, which gives us liquidity, which gives us choices, which gives us growth, which gives us way too much boredom and confusion to give a damn about who's doing or getting what. But all this also gave us something else too, of course. Consequences. 
The sacrifice zones that have often had typical geographies, like many nations in Africa, but which increasingly appear today across the entire international economic world, patchworking daily life for cultures across all our territories, including the very heartland of industrialism itself, its birthplace, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Because one of the consequences of the financial market's crash was a bit of political strategy so directly linked to the worsening of modern poverty and the quickening of separation between rich and poor, it was all but coming clean about the way our globalised, financialised capitalist system really works. Austerity. Another skyscraper, anyone? Reading Peter S. Goodman's article for the New York Times, In Britain, Austerity is Changing Everything, is like reading about a faraway place. A thoughtful little portrait of human life in a foreign land. An emotional curio, perhaps touching you to feel, momentarily wedded to the story of those captured in its frame. As if you're an old travel writer, sincerely curious, recognising humanity, ultimately catching a comfy steamer back to the leafy home counties in your typewriter. Bit like catching a segment of Radio Falls from our own correspondent. The apparently dispassionate perspective of an outsider, meticulously noticing the details, dot-to-dotting the landscape of the picture, marking out the boundaries of people's actual lives. Only this particular snapshot isn't a wistful pastoral of old England. It is a very slow dolly zoom on the places that didn't so much see the tide of our modern economics go out as watch the lagoon of society being drained. It is a tale that starts in Prescott in the northwest and is of a list of dour closures and endings, of diminishing public amenities and of a council so increasingly strapped for cash it is turning to the sell-off of more public space, like the apparently much-enjoyed Brownsfield Park. The potential march of developers' private profits eradicating more shared free experiences of daily well-being. It is the easy-to-picture image of austerity Britain, a thing as familiar to me as a Brit today as it is alien. Conservative Party leader and eventual UK PM David Cameron's sort of sickeningly lukewarm turn of phrase based on no actual idea I ever saw, the big society, was originally, I think, just a way to try to make conservatism sound compassionate in an age of new Labour. Maybe trying to steal their middle-class country crown after Tony Blair sort of went mad bombing people. But it became the initial fig leaf to a grim badge for government cuts in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, after Labour lost the following election to our first coalition government this century. In suitably conservative vein, dominating the coalition with the Liberal Democrats, as the party obviously did, the story they told of these cuts was intended, I think, to appeal to the fairness and adult responsibility that is the hook to all good conservative voters few of whom, I think, believe it's quite that simple really when they're twiddling the pencil at the ballot box, but are nonetheless often motivated by genuine belief in trying to run a fair system, not an unsustainably expensive one for bloody scroungers lacking imagination. I imagine. While also doing their best to block the sudden wave of marauding Marxism, apparently at the gates again, I don't know, whatever, it purported to bring us together by tightening our belts. 
like a community gastric band, sort of round the throat. Oh, I am a cheeky old liberal, I know. But whatever the ideologies and comparative virtues of deficit spending or of dealing with national debt, and whatever the truth of the numbers and claims thrown around by everyone during Cameron and Osborne's helming of this economic strategy, it's hard to deny the effect it's had on people at the poor end of the trickle-down ladder. It's kind of... Well, I think you get the picture of what being under the golden showers of anything trickling down probably feels like. It's also made the bottom rung slippery again. It's been undignified for lots of people, to say the least. The stresses on people trying to sit through the consolidation of different benefits into universal credit, compounded by technical tangles and delays, and the simply stomach-pit-dropping Kafkaism of fit-to-work disability allowance checks, deeming lots of almost comically ridiculous cases of people suddenly, lustily fit for work after years of having no legs or an entirely glass chest cavity or something, have been so bad. There have been horrifying figures emerging, of not simply deaths, but of suicides, linked to people's fears of how they will survive in austerity Britain. Paraphrasing a BMJ Open report, the Independent simply quotes an academic but chilling number. 120,000 deaths due to essentially conservative-led austerity. Despite the report stopping short of saying they were truly avoidable deaths, says the writer Alex Matthews King, the report says essentially that mortality sharply began to rise on the other side of social care austerity measures, where it had been falling in the UK... And the article quotes one author of the report, who goes as far as accusing the government of economic murder. In another article, the paper unearths deeper specifics, and it shows that the sector is already dealing with vulnerable people, of course, so people feeling even less able to deal with such, well, existential uncertainties. Data from the NHS Digital's Adult Psychiatric Morbidity Survey of 2007, which surveyed around 7,000 adults in Britain, shows 21% of IB claimants had tried to take their own lives, compared with 6% of the general adult population. The same survey, seven years later, reveals that 43% of ESA claimants and as high as 47%, almost half, of female ESA claimants had attempted suicide in their lifetimes, compared with 7% of the general population. In response to the figures, they quote Dr Jay Watts, a consultant clinical psychologist and member of the campaigning Alliance for Counselling and Psychotherapy, who told them, These results are staggering. It is difficult to overemphasise how large a jump in rates of attempted suicide this is. I cannot think of a greater jump in rates in any population. If the government has any real interest in suicide prevention, benefits reform must be the immediate priority. The UN has condemned the government's treatment of disabled people as contrary to their human rights. What this feels like, the article illustrates with testimony from a typical claimant, Sarah Louise Thompson, 31 at the time, who suffers from fibromyalgia syndrome as well as depression. I've suffered with mental health for many years and have felt it more when I have to go for another assessment every two years, she said. I'm currently awaiting to hear back from another form I've had to fill out about an update of my health and how it still affects me. 
I'm terrified of what might happen, as I know they're taking it away from people. Right now, my anxiety and depression are really being affected. They make us feel like we're criminals. I have lost count of the amount of times I've tried to end my life. In the face of such stories, such evidence, the Spectator's righteous row with Goodman's original New York Times article and its exact facts about the Northwest suffering sheds little light on the validity of austerity's intentions. As Patrick Maguire says in New Statesman, the point is the people themselves, up close, not the punditry of political opportunists, including me. And we've not even talked about the state of the emergency services, the NHS, the fundamental lack of reliable affordable structure to wider social care, or the crumbling state of UK prisons, the chief inspector of which, Peter Clark, has been professionally candid about the rising state of self-harm, suicides and struggling management in the whole system, markedly rising since austerity. He stopped short of telling Jon Snow on Channel 4 News that they were inhuman, but looked sorely tempted not to. And this in a somehow very British culture of locking people up far sooner than investing in helping people find productive ways forward. All while police numbers are cut and cut and fire crews have seen fire-related deaths go up as their own teams have been diminished. I know, this is all sounding a little dramatic and perhaps you feel one-sided. Not sure you'll find me especially penitent here as the inclusive future won't be built on being blind to injustice but rather gracious. If I am coming to the conclusion that the only viably sustainable future is one that accounts for all of us, includes everyone, I can't say I believe an old conservative philosophy is easily consistent with this. And that's putting it graciously. Austerity in particular was bad strategy at best and arguably disingenuous. Many feel founded on myths of good husbandry in times of crisis to attempt to hollow out the welfare state with nothing to replace it, like regime change. As Paul Krugman quotes John Maynard Keynes himself in The Guardian, who apparently wrote in 1937, The boom, not the slump, is the right time for austerity at the Treasury. If we are facing a welfare bill only going up, leadership has to look at why. Because yes, this isn't a trend caused by austerity or even the banking crisis itself. So what are the underlying economic rhythms that have been pointing us this way since the Thatcher and Reagan years? Whatever your hunch, conviction, firm beliefs or resounding resignations to our econo-political story, even in my home country managing the globally fifth largest economy, if we are a generation of people heavily relying on benefits between us, we're obviously going to need help invested in us to get viably off benefits escape unhealthy dependencies because we're people worried and feeling stuck or just not inspired with an alternative in the world we see around us. As a Brit, I'll admit I can, yes, in moments where I extinguish the hopey changey lamp for a chilly moment, feel the pin prickles of hopelessness in the air. Even down here by the seaside, friends with many can-do creative people. 
we can all feel the frankly fractious despondency, hanging like frozen shards all around us since the B word dropped its result like a quiet bomb, exposing all the papered over fissures stretching back through austerity years to something way before that perhaps. Symptoms of a country currently wheezing under a crippling lack of cultural leadership shutting down any comprehension of meaningful engagement with the challenges with the people of now. A leadership unfit for work, lost in its own family gossip, barely leaving the house, let alone getting out into its community to make a difference. And um, this is how people across many nations seem to be feeling at the moment in their local ways. As Paul Krugman puts it in his article trying to contextualise the idea of austerity, I often encounter people on both the left and the right who imagine that austerity policies were what the textbook said you should do, that those of us who protested against the turn to austerity were staking out some kind of heterodox radical position. But the truth is that mainstream textbook economics not only justified the initial round of post-crisis stimulus, but said that this stimulus should continue until economies had recovered. What we got instead, however, was a hard right turn in elite opinion, away from concerns about unemployment and toward a focus on slashing deficits, mainly with spending cuts. What played well with people in their fears at the time, he suggests, is a basic household sense of propriety with the purse strings, which is common sense and doesn't equate at all with the concept of deficit spending for a national economy. Conservatives like to use the alleged dangers of debt and deficits as clubs with which to beat the welfare state and justify cuts in benefits. Suggestions that higher spending might actually be beneficial are definitely not welcome. Meanwhile, centrist politicians and pundits often try to demonstrate how serious and statesmanlike they are by calling for hard choices and sacrifice by other people. Standard policy would likely have been more Keynesian in the face of a slump. Spend to stimulate. If you cut in an economic slump, when you also have no room to let things breathe because your interest rates are already basically at an unprecedented 0%, you'll worsen the slump. But, suggests Krugman, those eager to perhaps more ideologically pursue austerity found a poster child of fear in Greece and some economic theory that claimed the opposite of normal macroeconomic thinking. The doctrine of expansionary austerity is largely associated with work by Alberto Alessina, an economist at Harvard, he says, who claimed his research had found that spending cuts create confidence and the positive effects of this increase in confidence trump the direct negative effects of reducing spending. There was, however, one tiny flaw in the plan. It was bollocks. The truth of various charts is that Britain's economy only started properly recovering in 2011, after the then-coalition government had quietly relaxed its main austerity measures. Its ideological aim to shrink government and welfare state alike kept the notion of austerity alive until, well, kind of now. And this seems a supremely British kind of conservatism, one that would rather suck up to big business than help people even if helping people makes better actual business sense. 
Business leaders love the idea that the health of the economy depends on confidence, which in turn, or so they argue, requires making them happy, Krugman says. The message was clear. Don't criticise big business, or the economy will suffer. But this kind of argument loses its force if one acknowledges that job creation can be achieved through deliberate policy, that deficit spending, not buttering up business leaders, is the way to revive a depressed economy. So business interests are strongly inclined to reject standard macroeconomics and insist that boosting confidence, which is to say keeping them happy, is the only way to go. How much does all this enormously consequential stuff turn on who everyone's mates are? The influence of personalities, ambitions, beliefs and associations of the people in the room. Whatever the well-intentioned or badly misguided or downright nefarious intentions of national leadership in the Britain that's helped to inspire something as desperate-sounding as a podcast called Unsee the Future, its practices have led to local governments being gradually emasculated. Crises can, of course, be a two-edged sword, with some efficiencies to be found in dramatic shake-ups. But if any ideologues think cutting benefits will make the demand for them go away, they are fresh crisis-inducingly deluded, I would suggest. The fact that over 80% of my council tax goes now towards social care, looking after the elderly, the young, the sick. It's a trend, a symptom. Making the elderly, the young, the sick suffer debilitating social trauma and humiliation will do nothing to even look at the causes. They will only make the whole climate of confidence, optimism, energy, productivity, even weaker. Duh! Of course, charity is a problematic entity in the middle of our poverties. And as we've touched on elsewhere, dishing out aid is no great solution, even just in principle, never mind in corrupted and oversighted practice. Geoffrey Sachs's ambitious plan to eradicate poverty was met with scepticism even when published 13-odd years ago, because it still relied on a bit of an older world view of benign globalising states deigning to help poorer ones. Not at all the tone that Sachs himself brought to this, but the effective one his ideas met other ears with, because it hardly helps the globalising family if the biggest engines of such economic growth are driven with corporate influence and interests that are at direct odds with their local economies. As John Vidal reviewed it at the time, what Sachs believes could change the world in 20 years and eradicate all extreme poverty at a cost that everyone could bear is simple. Far more aid, far more debt forgiveness, far better trade terms, and far more access to good technology. Sound familiar? All this is now economic orthodoxy. What everyone from the anti-globalizers to the very poor of Brazil, charities such as Oxfam and Christian Aid, and even politicians from Gordon Brown to the Tory party, have been arguing for some time. But he cites the Africa Commission reporting back at about the same time and agreeing, yes, they wanted those terms met, but they recognised that other major problems such as conflict, the rape of resources, environmental degradation, privatisation, multinational companies, population increases and urban slums must be considered too. It's not really about money, poverty... As Rob Weir says on an interesting thread on Cora, how many aspirins does it take to cure brain cancer? 
The error to avoid is thinking that poverty is about lack of money rather than lack of productivity. Productivity, it's a complex thing, involving education, infrastructure, regulations, culture, rule of law and many other things. There may be cases where investment is needed. But in other cases, outside investment is actually harmful, to the extent it crowds out local investment. And he cites the Haiti hurricane disaster as an example. Western aid flowed in, funnelled through friends of the Clintons, whose companies made a tidy profit. Ditto for the elites in Haiti. The wealthy made out very well. But this dumping of goods and services destroyed the ability of small local businessmen to grow their business. Businesses that would have created jobs. Whatever the fact-checked details there, the principle makes sense. And, uh, money. See? It seems to cause more problems than it helps. It may be true in our current state of affairs that money is good because it gives you options, as a dear and qualified friend of mine puts it. But he puts it in a personal context that has perspective on what's really humanly valuable. And the context of all our human values right now is a current state of affairs looking precarious for everyone. A context needing the seeds of dramatic evolutionary change sowing fast in all our imaginations. Imagination. We find the whole world in there. The whole world of who we are. And sitting right alongside each other on the bus, in a traffic jam, passing each other on the high street, there are between us billions of different views of the world, different stories of who we are, of what we have, of what we're lacking. And one of the key aspects of telling a story is something that can change the whole outlook of it, or of us. Editing. Which bits of us do we tell, and which bits would we rather not? of Unsee the Future would like to point out that in an act of material abundance, they've made this finale of Unsee the Future so spectacularly large, so incredibly bloated with content and sanctimonious ideas, that they've had to split it into two for your consumptive convenience. So why not take a walk in the woods, a long hard think about your life choices, or just a comfort break, and return for episode 19, available now, without all the hoo-ha of the normal ending in bits and pieces and how's your father. Except to say, of course... Unsee the Future is a Momo Tempo production. Obviously. But go on. <laughs>